Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Gifts of Glory podcast. I'm your host, Dave Ebert, and I'm really happy to share this episode with you. I got a chance to catch up with somebody that had, at one point, auditioned for our improv ministry way back in the day when they were called Ha 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 Men, uh, before it became Ha Ha Men, and obviously before it became what it is known today as Well-Versed Comedy. Uh, this young lady, uh, she is a mom, she's a wife, she's an actress, a voiceover actress, a writer, director, producer, many, many hats. And I'm talking about Christian Taylor. She's also a co-host uh, when she's in town of the uh, Holy Post podcast starring Phil Vischer and Sky Jatani. Uh, it's a really fun podcast. And actually, that is how I ended up reconnecting with her as I listened to the podcast and found out she's part of that. And I reconnected and wanted to talk to her about her current project. It's called The Girl Who Wore Freedom. It's now currently in its uh, rough draft stage, if you will. Uh, she's going around uh, doing a lot of screenings, uh, trying to raise some uh, more funding for the film to try to get it to be a finished product. And I tell you, it is an amazing product as is. Uh, so when they get it finished and it's ready to go and hit the big screen for real, this is going to be a really good movie. Uh, it's a story uh, that uh, documents World War II and uh, the uh, Normandy invasion. So uh, I don't want to tell a lot about it. I will let uh, Christian tell you. Uh, this is our interview with Christian Taylor, the writer, director, producer, narrator, star of The Girl Who Wore Freedom. Uh, all of the details on how to connect with this film with Normandy Stories is in the show notes. Be sure to check out this film. Be sure to like the page and follow Christian in her world travels as she gets support for this film. And if you are able to, please support this movie, The Girl Who Wore Freedom. It's a wonderful story, and it's got so many levels to this story. And we're going to tell you all about that here during this interview. Here is my interview with Christian Taylor about The Girl Who Wore Freedom on the Gifts of Glory podcast, where we celebrate and promote men and women using their gifts, talents, and passions to honor and glorify God. And now joined by Christian Taylor. Christian, welcome. Hey, Dave. How are you? Hi, everybody. I'm good, and I'm really excited to have you on. Um, we met about five years ago when you'd auditioned for what was then Ha 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 Men, and uh, uh, for whatever reason, I think God just led you to a different uh, path, and it, it appears that it's working for you. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm very sorry about that. I had a great time during that audition. I was hoping you know, to continue to do that. I love improv, and I think we had a really fun night, uh, but I can't believe that's been five years. I know, and it, it, time has absolutely flown by. We are, uh, we're actually going through a, a rebranding again soon. So, haha, uh, men will eventually be no more. But it's been a really fun ride, and uh, it's also been fun watching every uh, every so often, seeing some of the different things you're involved in. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, the girl who wore freedom. Uh, we've got all the links in the show notes. Um, but uh, you do a lot of you wear a lot of hats. Your mom, I do. your uh, podcast uh, co-host on occasion. Yeah. Um, so on Gifts of Glory, we uh, want to you know really just celebrate and promote those that are using their gifts for God's glory. And I know that a lot of your story is based on your faith. So why don't we get into a little bit about how you came to faith and where your you know how God has been using you in in different arts. Sure. Well, uh, I was I was born in the 60s, 1966 to be exact, so that'll give you a little bit of context, in the Bible Belt of Mississippi. So 
I was born in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I was born to parents who were churched, but not Christians. And um, my parents were 19 and or 20 and 23 when they got married, super young and right out of college. And we moved to a little town called Laurel, Mississippi. And we started going to the First Baptist Church. I, of course, at this time was like three or four. And the pastor at the time was uh, a guy by the name of Bob Marsh. And he was an incredibly uh, deep, discipled man of God who had, I think, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he brought so many people to the Lord during his time at First Baptist Church, including my parents. And uh, he asked them, as very young Christians, to begin leading the youth group there. So my parents started leading the youth group. I started spending a lot of time with high school students. And um, I remember my when I was, I think, three or four, kneeling by my bed and asking Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And um, that, of course, has just been the beginning of my journey with Christ. But it was uh, so, you know, it marked me so much that I haven't forgotten it. That's, that's incredible to be able to be in a position to make that decision at three or four years old. And because, you know, kids, we think, oh, they're too young, they, we have to wait till they're nine, ten years old to make a decision. But I think that we discredit or we, you know, hurt a lot of children in their walk by trying to limit when they can make that decision. And it, it, it just goes to show that once God gets a hold of you, it doesn't matter how old you are. Well, it's crazy because, you know, I have children. I have four kids and when they're little like that you don't really think that they can grasp or understand much but what i remember is that my mother painted both my parents and my church painted such an attractive picture of who jesus was you know i really wanted to have jesus in my heart whatever that meant and um and just had a real hunger for a relationship with him from early on and so i tried to um you know, teach my kids in the same way when they were little and all of them, you know, I remember one of my sons at age four saying, I want to be a Christian. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're naturally drawn to wanting a relationship with a, you know, divine being if we've had that picture painted for us for a very young age. Um, But that's just, that's when the seed is planted, really, you know. Proverbs 22, 6. Yeah. So that you are a mother of four. Uh, one of them is currently in the military, or is he? I actually yet? have two now. Oh, you have two in the military. Yeah. Well, I had one that joined last week, and oh, so okay, he right. just now is in basic training. And I, of course, haven't heard from him since he sent us his address. And then my <laughs> um, so he's twenty, and then my twenty-nine-year-old is um, still in the uh, military, but he's in the Colorado National Guard, trying to get his uh, business degree from University of Colorado. Nice. And then I have a. 22-year-old who uh, plays lacrosse at Wabash College, and then a 17-year-old who is at home and playing lacrosse. And uh, yeah, he's our last one. We're almost empty nesters, which I don't know how that's possible since I'm only like 28. Right. right. (laughs) (laughs) How do I have a 29-year-old? That just can't happen. Right. And uh, you got a beautiful family photo up here. uh, Probably a few years old, but... Yes, definitely a few years old. I think that was taken... So, so that little guy right there, he was probably six there. He's now almost 18. Wow. <laughs> so, so it's been a while. But you've, you've obviously done a really great job. you got kids in college or in the military, and they seem like everyone's doing Only well. by the grace of God, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Only by the grace of God. We've been married for 25 years, and, um, you know, 
I, we really truly have walked through some really difficult times, mm-hmm. um, whether they are illness or uh, financial difficulties or marriage difficulties or kid difficulties. Mm-hmm. Two, my two in the military are on the autistic spectrum. Wow. Um, and so as a family, over those 25 years, we've had some really rough stuff. And um, my husband lost his job. He, we lost our house. We owed tons of money to the IRS. Like you name it, we've walked through it. And um, I wouldn't trade any of it, not for a moment um, because of what the Lord has done in each of us as we've walked through those hard things. And one of the uh, things that I always like to point out is just because you accept Christ and you follow Christ does not suddenly inoculate you from trials. It probably puts a bigger bullseye on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, the way that I say it is we're human fallen people, right? Right. So we're a lump of clay, and our heart may want to follow Christ, and we may want to be... You know, I mean, we naively think it's about heaven or escaping hell or something like that. But it's truly about becoming the people that Christ originally designed us to be. And if you're like this big hunk of clay or marble, how do you make it into something beautiful? I mean, you have to use tools to get it there or fire or something. And um, so I think that he uses our circumstances and situations and whether they're of our own making or, you know, consequences of choices we make or things that are done for us. I tell my kids and anybody I talk to, I see that as like basic training. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like boot camp, you know, and you're really got to go through really tough, horrible stuff, be stripped of your, you know, unique identity and um, be born again and become a different human on the other side. And so, you know, you can either embrace uh, or, you know, resist those pains and difficulties or you run into them and, Doing that, you come out faster on the other side, I think. And there's a uh, pastor that uh, was a guest minister at my church a couple years back, and he said, you're either in three stages. You're either entering into a struggle, you're in a struggle, or you're just coming out of <laughs> That's one. That's a good one, yeah. Uh, and it, it, like I said, it doesn't inoculate you to follow Christ, but it does give you the light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dark it is. There's always a hope that even if the 80 years on this earth is full of trial, 10,000 years from now, it's not going to matter. Well, and you know what I've learned, like making of this film that you talked about has by far been the hardest personal thing and professional thing I've ever done. And, um, I've gotten to the place where I have learned, I have to be comfortable in that hard awfulness as if it's never going away and be in the middle of it and praising the Lord for it, regardless if it changes or not. And not just say it with my words, but genuinely be thankful for it. That's a whole nother ball game. Sometimes you have to do only the words so that you can finally get your heart jump started to that place That's of true. gratefulness. Sometimes you do have to go through the motions. It's very cliche to fake it till you make it, but sometimes you know I have to praise the Lord. I don't feel it right now, but... I have to take that step. I have to remind my heart of who the first love is. Amen. I mean, how many times does the Bible say over and over and over again in the Old Testament, remember, remember, Mm -hmm. remember, go back and think about, you know, what I've done for you. I mean, even in the New Testament, it's everywhere in the Bible. You Mm -hmm. know, do not forget. Always remember. Go back and ponder these things. Put scripture in your heart. I mean, 
you know, there's the roadmap in the Bible for us right. that gives us the formula. And it goes all the way through Revelation in the letters to the seven churches. Remember your first love, which is what I've been touching on, is, is sometimes we get so involved in the minutia of this life that our eyes dri- drift downward from the mountaintop to the muck. And we got to remember our first love. And it's easier said than done. So, yeah. And life is a test, but fortunately it's open book. That's exactly right. That's a good way to put it. All right. So getting back to your testimony, um, you accepted the Lord at uh, three or four years old. You've instilled those values in your kids. How did being a Christian translate into doing things like producing movies and, and the other projects that you're involved in? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, as I look back over the course of my life, um, you know, yes, I had that salvation experience when I was young, but it has truly been a working out. There have been watershed moments all the way through mm-hmm. uh, different times where I look back and I was like, was I really saved? You mm-hmm. know, gosh, I've learned so much or I've changed so much and now I have a deeper love and I just sink to another level. And, um, you know, that happened over a course of time through different things. And one thing that was very instrumental was a Christian camp that I went to every summer during my, you know, elementary and middle school years. Um, and I had a lot of growing um, during those times, um, intellectually, but also in my heart. And mm-hmm. then I went to a Christian boarding school in Long Island, New York. Another great, amazing opportunity. Um, and the Lord, there was a, a phenomenal theater program there phenomenal okay. like it was started by a guy who was a broadway actor who just was so incredibly talented and he started this theater program and i i had remembered when i was young i got mesmerized by a high school west side story play okay. when i was like 10 maybe and i was like i'm gonna be an actress <laughs> and so like that was my dream as a young kid and then when i got to this high school and they had this program i'm like i'm gonna audition and so i did and it became a huge part of who i was and um you know really i always wanted to be an actress so but I was also very serious about my faith all the way through high school, all the way through college. In the summers, I um, interned in the Senate Republican Conference in Washington, D.C., in the radio and television department. Nice. So I was doing theater in school, and during the summer, I was working in radio and television. And then when it came time to go to college, I wanted to go to L.A., and my family said, you've been in boarding school. You're going to be home. So my mother filled out my application to Catholic University in D.C. and said, that's where you're going. So I was fortunate in that they had one of the best theater companies or uh, programs in the country. And um, so I went there, and afterwards I was with a national touring company. I landed that job for a year. And at that point, it became very difficult to be a Christian and be in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. And I came to a crisis of faith. Because I was, we were on a touring company. There were 14 of us. 10 of them were guys. Four of them were girls. None of them were Christians besides me. They all wanted to share hotel rooms and beds and dressing rooms. And so in order to keep myself straight, I needed to separate myself. I needed to ask for my, you know, girl's room and a girl's dressing room. And that brought a lot of condemnation on me. And it was pretty miserable. Everybody was drinking and doing drugs and... So after a year of that, I quit. And I told the Lord, you know, 
I cannot do this. This is not who I want to be. If this is what this industry is, then Mm -hmm. I need out. And so I left it all behind and I got married and had a family and put all of those desires and dreams on hold. And actually I'd kill them. I'm like, I'm never doing any of that again. And so we moved to Wheaton by chance. My husband got a job in Chicago and um, at some point, I think along my third child, I was just so miserable. Mm-hmm. Like I was at home all the time. I was constantly faced with laundry. I was doing nothing creative. My creative soul was dying. I was just, I needed an outlet. And so my husband um, volunteered to stay at home early in the morning so I could go do the news at WET and radio. Oh, nice. So I volunteered there and I walked into the studio and everything had changed. We had gone from digital or analog to digital and I knew none of the equipment or anything but they taught me and it also taught me that um, maybe I could since I know this be a voiceover artist work from home and still be a mom and that was the beginning of me thinking gosh maybe I could do a little bit still Mm -hmm. and so I started to put together a voiceover career and I started taking classes and wanted to go into acting and Um, but it was really more of a, just to get my feet wet and back in the groove. And that was the beginning of a whole nother adventure of how do you make a living doing your creative art? Right. I think there are many uh, creatives that wonder, how can I pay the bills and still do what I feel God's called me? And there is a level of faith, but there's also a level of using the wisdom that God's given you to find that balance. And sometimes it's really difficult uh, for me with improv and, and comedy. That's what I want to do. I want to do creative stuff for a living. But I have a wife and three cats to feed, so yeah. comedy's not necessarily going to do that right off. Right. And I mean, it, and two, you know, my faith still continuing to grow, still continue to be the most important thing in my life, trying to figure out how to balance faith, family, and a, a career or um, even a hobby mm-hmm. in balance was super challenging and still is. But, um, you know, I did learn, I've been in this business long enough to know that there is a difference between being an artist and it just being a hobby and being an artist and making it your professional line of work. And what I learned was those people that treat it like a business and like they're opening a small business Mm -hmm. and they operate that way as whatever your craft is or whoever you are as the commodity. Um, Those people make a living at it. But if you treat it like your art and I just want to be cast or I just want to do this thing, it will constantly remain a hobby. So it's really about the way that you go about handling your uh, desires for creative work. And I think one of the key words that you said there is the word just. If, in describing your art and your creativity, if you use I just want or I just want, it sounds like you're limiting, which means that you're already settled on being a hobby instead of your career or what you do to make a living. I think it's confusing because um, there's not a lot of education out there about how to be a successful entertainment person. Mm Mm-hmm. You have tons of schools that teach you, uh, that, that maybe teach you improv or teach you directing or teach you photography or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. You have all of those that develop the skills. There are not a lot of people out there saying, let me show you how to make money doing this. Um, 
And so I kind of had to figure it out myself. Right. And, um, you know, I, 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 there's so much like I now kind of consult for people that are creatives that want to make a living simply because I want to be an Indian guide because I feel like I was so taken advantage of because there's so many people out there who offer acting classes or voiceover classes or improv classes mm-hmm. and really they all they want is your money right. for you know their self-interest is making a profit off your desire. Right. And so I spent a lot of money and a lot of time on things that may not have given me a good return on my investment. And so I never really understood that I needed to be weighing things like a business. I needed to have a nest egg. It was going to cost money to make money. Mm-hmm. I needed to make sure that whatever I invested in was going to give me a return. Right. And uh, and those are the things that you know, I, I really enjoy and I like what Second City does, but they are very much in the process of just producing people that know improv but don't know how to turn that into a career. Right. And there are many agents who will take advantage of somebody like, oh, I'll tell you how, you know, just pay me or do this. Yeah. And there is a severe lack, especially in the Christian world, of how to guide Christian people into a way to make business out of what God's gifted them. Yeah. And I mean, you bring the the whole Christian aspect into the business thing, and then it makes it even more complicated mm-hmm. because, you know, you want to be a res- responsible with your finances. Right. You want to provide for your family. You want to provide for yourself. You know, you want to honor God and tithe with what you make. And so, um, how do you be, how do you handle your your desires, your craft, your everything with responsibility, with wisdom, um, and in a way that honors God and, and doesn't squander what you've been given. So that's, it's a big challenge. Another part of the challenge is there are those within the body that will challenge a Christian artist. Well, God gave you that gift. Why do you need to make money off of it? Or, Mm. or they think because you're Christian, you're worth less than, the secular comedians or the secular actors or the secular artists. Mm -hmm. They think that because you're Christian that they should be able to get a deal from you. Mm -hmm. You There is that. And I would certainly counter by saying, you know, God did create me um, with a creative brain. You know, I am, I was created to be some sort of artist, some sort of creative I can tell you that because I got 540 on my math SAT and like a <laughs> yeah. thousand on my English, right? So um, I have no math skills. But um, I do think that I am to use those gifts and abilities for the glory of God. And he does want me to be responsible. And so uh, with those gifts, and that does mean charging what I'm worth you know, or what my service is worth. It does mean treating myself and my gifts with as much respect as I, you know, and, and demanding that as well, you know, from even if I'm doing Christian stuff, there are times where I will donate my services, Mm -hmm. but there are other times where if they were being God honoring to me, they would pay me what I'm worth. The the Bible does teach about paying the worker, taking care of the worker, providing for their needs. And if they're giving you something, if it's, you know, from your pastor to musicians that you bring in or whoever, it, it really is important to, to be a good steward and recognize the value that God has put in them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, like I said, I take each job or each opportunity um, one at a time. And, you know, if, uh, if there are Christians that want me to do work for them or a Christian company uh, and they want me to quote them a rate, I will say, these are my rates. Mm-hmm. And if this is not in your budget, we can discuss that. Um, but I always let them know what my rates are. Now, here's the other thing. I also tithe off of whatever I bring in, right? right? And so that money I give back to the Lord and to Christian work. So if I'm not, if I'm not charging you know, what I should be paid, then I'm not able to tithe what I should be tithing. I, I don't know. I look at it that way. Like It's really important for me to support the work of others. And to do that, I need to have some income. Exactly. And that was something that uh, we inst- inst- um, instituted into Haha Men is that whenever we get a paid gig, uh, we would tithe to the church off the top because Fountain of Life has been really good to us these six years. And every time we get a paid gig, we want to give them 10% of whatever we bring in. It's not much, but it, it's that act of faithfulness. Of Absolutely. Lord, instead of taking the full 500, we'll trust you with the 450 and, and split it amongst ourselves. And I think that God will honor that. Yeah. And it's important to get what you're worth. And then you can also spread that, like you said, and honor the work of others. Well, and I think it's important to show that money doesn't hold, have a hold on our heart. Exactly. And, and that's a constant check when you own your own business. Right. Right? So if, if I get a check for $500 and I know that my overhead that month is $500, like it's super hard to be like, okay, Lord, I'm going to give you, you know what I mean? Because right. uh, ultimately I have to be able to truly trust him. And so I can't trust in the money that I make or another job that's coming up. I have to trust that the Lord is in control of my workflow and my finances. And, um, you know, it is difficult as a freelance person, whether it's, you know, and like you said, I produce, I direct, I act, you know, I cast, I do lots of different things um, in this business. And I never know. I wake up unemployed almost every day. You never know when that next call is coming in. Nope. And so I can't, I have to trust the Lord is going to work all that out. And especially with the the big project that we'll get into uh, pretty quickly, um, the girl who wore freedom, you know, that's been a big thing. And I'm sure that it's not necessarily something that you're making a living off of yet. Correct. I don't think I'll ever make a living off of it, but that's not the point for me. I mean, the girl who wore freedom is a project that I never set out to be a director or producer or a writer. Um, but I felt compelled to tell the story. And I did feel like the onus of the Holy spirit that Mm -hmm. like this was given to me and I needed to be responsible with this story. I knew that I didn't know what I was doing and I would was way out of my league, but I knew I could put together a team of people that could help me tell an important story that needed to be told. And bigger than that, I truly felt like the Lord's call to me was not necessarily a finished product. It was more, here's the story. This is what I want you to do. But more than anything, I want you to do production differently. I want you to honor me in it step by step and we'll do this together. And so all the way along, I never really knew if I was going to end up with anything. And I never held on to that as the ultimate thing. Um, Is finishing what you start the ultimate thing? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is having the story told after I've invested people's time and money the the ultimate good thing? Yes. 
but it's not the ultimate thing. And the ultimate thing was, how do I reflect the character of Christ in this project with the people I'm in every day, people mm-hmm. I'm in business with, people I meet? Um, and bigger than anything, this project, um, The Girl Who Wore Freedom, is the story of D-Day and the first days after that um, from the French perspective. And these are incredibly loving people and amazing people that live in Normandy, and none of them know Christ. Very few of them know Christ. And I felt very compelled that I was to be in relationship with them, to be praying with them and for them and being vocal about my faith, regardless of whether it may offend them or whether they think I'm crazy or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I, I felt like that was the Lord's calling on my life. And then if there was a film that was a byproduct and, and hallelujah, that would be something we could enjoy, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't the purpose of me doing what I'm doing. And you screened for me the, uh, the first 15 minutes of the uh, film and it, you bring up faith, and it, it's it's such a a parallel to the faith walk. Well, yeah, I mean that's what I saw because I got there and and I'm learning this story. Like they're telling me that you know we were oppressed. It was dark. We didn't have anything. There was evil hovering over us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our saviors arrived. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I heard that. Wow. You know, we were saved. They were our saviors. They were our heroes. And they came to bring light and hope and love and joy and restoration and reconciliation, like all of the things. And I was like, this is the salvation story here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing that was so perplexing to me is that there was just this thick, palpable love that you could not escape. Love from these French Normans to the Americans and anybody that was from America. Like they treat, I never paid for a meal. They treated me in France. Like I was a queen only because I was an American. And you know, that to me just blew my mind. And I thought these people don't know the Lord. How come? But God is love. Mm -hmm. God is here. He's here, but nobody knows it. It, they literally have the law written on their heart. They just don't realize it. Correct. And one of the things, and I noticed this uh, three or four years ago when they had uh, the cartoonist and the magazine was shot uh, or attacked by uh, by uh, Muslims. They said, Je suis Charlie. And I looked at that, and Je suis, if I'm pronouncing it even c- close to correct, looks very similar to Jesus. I am. <laughs> yes, I am. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Je suis just sweet Charlie, yeah. And so they have it, they're exposed to it, just they've got to find something that's going to flip that switch where they make that connection. Well, and tr- truthfully, how does anybody, I mean, outside of being Paul and meeting, a, you know, having this sort of blinding light experience, how does someone really meet Jesus? Usually, it's through the hands and the feet and the hearts of humans Mm -hmm. and not necessarily what you preach. It's more how you love. Exactly. And so my mission was to love these people with everything I had in me. And I wanted to tell their story. You know, America always goes over there wanting to tell our story. All of the movies are about the American coming to the rescue, that story. I wanted to tell the French story, you know, of loss and deprivation and 
pain because they lost 20,000 lives mm. of French civilians were killed. Um, they had loss and sometimes at the hands of Americans or a lot of times at the hands of Americans. And yet they were able to forgive. And yet nobody has stopped to ask them, tell me your story. Right. So when I went there and I began asking these French people and telling them I wanted to tell their story, all of a sudden you should have seen their faces light up. Like, really? Nobody ever cares about our perspective. Right. And the fact that I would pour into them and want to know them and, you know, share their stories with the world and talk about how wonderful they are to our veterans, um, it's been a healing thing because they, now they, I don't know, they kind of look at Americans even a little more differently. Right. Yeah. We've got more of the Gifts of Glory podcast coming right up. Now, do you or somebody you know have an event coming up? Are you or are they looking for entertainment uh, that's going to reach all generations, that's going to be clean and won't offend, and will leave your group with some great memories? Oh, and all that, plus not going to break your budget? Well, check out Wellverse Comedy. We love to bring laughter, love to keep it creative, unique, and clean, and we love leaving our audiences rolling. We recently packed the house at Judy's Beat Lounge at the Second City, and we're ready to bring some awesome comedy to you. For more information, email improv at wellversecomedy.com. Again, that's improv at wellversecomedy.com. And we also do training as well. So if you're looking for somebody to do a comedy workshop or an improv workshop to improve communication, team building, self-esteem, and helping people find their voice, we do that as well. So again, use that email address improv at wellversecomedy.com more of the gifts of glory podcast coming right up as we celebrate and promote men and women using their gifts talents and passions to honor and glorify god Now, um, you know, speaking logistically, uh, watching uh, the first uh, a little bit there, the 15 uh, minutes or so, you have captions for the English-speaking audience when it's a French speaker, and then vice versa when it's an English speaker. How challenging was the language barrier in doing these interviews? Oh my gosh, I cannot even begin to tell you. I mean, seriously, right? I'm a, I've never directed a film before, mm-hmm. and... You know, that would be a challenge in itself if it was an English film. But this is a dual language film. And not only that, it's it's for two audiences. So as I'm writing the script and putting it all together, I'm constantly having to be mindful of two audiences, two perspectives. What do the French want to see? What do the Americans want to see? How can I get each one of those to embrace this film and learn from the other Mm -hmm. and see each other in a new light? And so the language barrier was just the first part of that. Um, Fortunately, the first people I met could speak English enough for me to understand them. Um, and they are so hungry to learn more English and to, so, um, the very first day in the first five minutes I was in Normandy, I met, 
um, the heroine of our film and her daughter. So I met uh, Danny, Patrice Boucherie, and her daughter, Flo. And um, Danny did not speak any English, but Flo does. And she spoke a little, but she is dying to come to America. And at the end of our meeting and our time in Normandy, I said, well, if you're ever in the United States, you're welcome to come stay with us. Really? Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, I'm coming for three weeks at Christmas. And (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? But uh, she did. She came. She wanted to learn English and she wanted to be here. And some of our most hilarious conversations have been trying to figure out how to communicate. Um, There's a line in the film where my son, who was the reason we were in Normandy in the first place, um, he says, you know, the French invited us to dinner in their homes. And Yes, language was a barrier, but it was fun to try to communicate. And that's, I found that to be true. Like it is hilarious on both sides, just the, the miscommunication and, you know. So your son is in the military and he's part of the uh, 101st, which is the same battalion that uh, paratrooped into. I guess that's the verb, paratrooped. Yeah. Yeah, they jumped. They jumped. Yeah. So um, there were two airborne units from the United States that jumped into Normandy, you know, in the early morning hours of June 6th. And it's the 101st Airborne Division, now located in um, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and the 82nd Airborne Division out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And so those were the first people um, behind enemy lines. And um, they landed in what is known now as the American sector. And some of those major towns are St. Mary Glees, St. Marie Dumont, Carenton, um, Picoville, Angoville. Those are considered the American sector. And so these people in my film, most of their interactions were with Americans, which is why they love Americans so much. Nice. And he was over there for the annual D-Day Yeah, uh, so did you know that every year since 1945, they have been having celebrations and commemorations to honor our veterans? I, I knew that it was a celebration uh, because usually a uh, president goes over for those sort of things. And right. But usually like every five years. Right. But okay. they do it every year. They've been doing it since the sp- summer of 1945, June 6, 1945. And I did not know that. So when I, you know, Hunter, they, and they always invite the units that liberated them. Mm-hmm. So you know, the 101st, the 82nd, the 4th Infantry Division, the 29th Infantry Division, the 1st Division, all of that is the Army. They invite the Navy because the Navy was a huge part. The Coast Guard was a part of D-Day. Really? Yeah. So they invite them all to come back. And um, so the French make an invitation to the United States. The United States then selects which units are going to go back and when, and then the French have the ceremonies and the American units are act as honor guards. Um, and those are during the ceremonies. Like they'll have a ceremony at Utah beach or they'll have one at point to Hawk, or they'll have one at the cabbage patch in Carentum. And, um, those will happen during the day, but at night, it's all sorts of fun. And mm-hmm. so the French are dying to get to know these new American heroes and they invite them for dinner and they try to get them drunk at the stop bar and <laughs> like, you know, and the service members and the veterans never pay for a thing the whole time they're there. It's a sight to behold. It's amazing. Wow. And I, I can just imagine. And the first one was June 6, 1945, which is where our heroine makes her bold entrance into the story yeah. in many ways yeah. because 
Well, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, so in 1945, you know, these guys jumped into these towns, and when they jumped, they left their parachutes everywhere. Mm -hmm. So there had been no fabric for the French people. They had been occupied for four years, and so they really were out of shoes and out of clothes, and so the women gathered all of these parachutes up and made all sorts of things. So Danny's mother, Cecile, uh, found a white parachute, which was the reserve chutes or the ones that bring medical supplies, and she found red ones which brought the machinery. Mm. And so she took the red and the white parachute and she made an American flag dress. She also had a little bit of blue fabric and stenciled on some white stars. And Danny, of course, was five at the time and completely adorable. And mm-hmm. so um, she was included in the first ceremony at Utah Beach in 1945. And then from then, uh, she continued to be in the following years. And then she, when she grew out of that dress, her mother had enough material to make her another dress. So I think she continued being in those ceremonies till she was about 10. But then she continued, uh, she had a scrapbook that her mother had made and she would get all these famous people and generals and soldiers to sign her book and take pictures with her. And then now when soldiers come back, she shows them she, this book, right. Of like, John Steele, who landed on the St. Mary Glee's Tower. She has pictures of him and signatures in there. She has pictures of, you know, General uh, Taylor, or uh, is it General Taylor? I think it is. Um, Colonel Sink, you know, just famous people Mm -hmm. that anybody who knows anything about the beginnings of World War II in Europe um, will know these people. And she'll show them to the modern day soldiers and tell them about her experience on D-Day. So she acts as sort of like an ambassador from the past Mm -hmm. to the present and then to the future, because then the little children or the soldiers will continue telling her stories. It's remarkable. So I, I wanted to know more. Mm-hmm. And um, so I learned more of her story. And she lived right off Utah Beach. So she remembers seeing the parachutes at night. She remembers the next morning when the soldiers from the 4th Infantry Division marched right by her front door and gave her gum and candy and chocolate. Um, she has a host of stories to tell about her experience with these Americans. Um, and then she introduced me to more survivors of the occupation. And um, I just kept hearing all these untold stories and thought, oh my goodness, somebody needs to hear these stories. We need to preserve them. And not only that, Americans need to know how much the French are grateful for the sacrifices for their freedom. Um, Because I just think we, as in America, we say we're grateful for our freedom, but I don't think you can really be grateful until you have had it taken away. Right. And, you know, so they, I, I have said all the way along, the French are the window through which we can truly understand what it means to be free. Right. And I think that in our society, there's been kind of a, a slight souring on the American pride in the American soldier. I think some of the, uh, the news out of the Iraqi war, uh, has really kind of taken away some of that patriotism and we've lost as a nation, some of our love for our, our troops. So I think it's important to tell the story like, hey, America is a, a good country. We've had mistakes, but we've done some really good things. And the importance of telling the story from the uh, perspective of the French so that it also shows that the con- the kind of the idea that we talked about before he started recording, that there's a lot of people in France that maybe don't like America. Maybe that's not true. That's more 
of a stereotype than an actual fact. Oh, I think it is a stereotype. I mean, I had no idea. You know, again, I, I told you before, I th- people's most of people's experiences with Paris, but Paris is a big city. They're not, you know, it's just like New York. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can find all types of people in Paris and maybe you bump into someone who's rude on the street or maybe, but that's anywhere in the United States. But France is bigger than Paris, and there are all types of people um, all over the map there. And my experience with them, whether they're in Paris or otherwise, is just an incredibly deep, thoughtful, loving people. And um, I think we have truly forgotten what an important impact our actions have on the national scene, particularly with people that are oppressed and suffering. And what I see in Normandy is that because we sacrificed, because we stood on a wall and said evil could not dominate here, these people's lives were forever changed. And Mm -hmm. they felt loved, they felt freed, they felt restored, and so they were grateful. And we left things there. We gave them chocolate and candy and pineapples and corn, Mm -hmm. things they didn't have before. So their lives were changed by good, by what America brought in, you know, their, their amazing spirit and their spirituality. Many of these GIs are Christians. And so they would interact with the soul, you know, with these kids or adults from a Christian, you know, value set of values. And that marked these children. And I think, You know, when I think about my own son serving somewhere, I think about that same thing. Mm -hmm. My son went to Afghanistan. He held Bible studies over there for Afghan people. Wow. You know, their presence there had an impact on the people they were around. And for me, as an American, I just, I look back and think those people that were liberated in 44 They've continued to talk about what was done for them, and it has had lasting impact on generation after generation after generation, and that happened because we helped. And so I just feel like our intervening and our participating on a national level has huge value, Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of gotten lost today because we care about us first. Right. And it, it, it's such an amazing story. I can't wait to see the full uh, picture. You are actually taking it to Normandy in, um, well, today's the 15th as we record. So in nine days, you're going to be in Normandy getting ready to show this off. Well, I'll be in Normandy in less than a week. Mm. And so I'll arrive there. We have 11 screenings. Um, this is the focus group cut. So, um, and we're telling everybody if they will donate $25, they will be able to see the focus group cut when we see it in Normandy. Mm -hmm. We want people to fill out a survey to give us some feedback because when we come back from Normandy, we're going to kind of recut it. I've really only had 10 weeks to put this film together. Um, I wrote, I started writing the script the first of March and, um, so this film has been written and put together and scored, um, and colored just, you know, in the last few weeks. And so we just need more time to kind of perfect the story and, and, you know, tell it the way that I think it will be better. So we'll take focus group survey information and we'll come back and improve upon the film. And then we'll submit it to festivals and to distributors and we'll see what happens from there.
And it's really interesting because I, I was listening to you talk about the the uh, this film on one of the podcasts, uh, the Holy Post podcast with Phil uh, Vischer and, and Sky Jatani. And I heard the theme song and sometimes Christian. And then I checked out the, the bio page and realized, I know her. I know that <laughs> movie. Okay. And you talked about how there were moments when, especially like recently, I think, where it was the 11th hour and you're like, I can't afford to do this. I need to cancel it. And yeah, suddenly something happened. Yeah, that was just, it, I, that was my dark night of the soul is what I call it. Um, and if you guys are listening and interested, um, there I do a podcast now called Documentary First okay. that is a behind the scenes podcast that tells you kind of the process on what we've been going through. So I go into detail there mm-hmm. about the dark night of the soul. Um, and you can find that on normandystories.com. But Basically, I decided not to go the investor route. Mm -hmm. So I put up uh, the seed money. My voiceover business has kind of been uh, subsidizing this film. So um, I'll do voiceover work and then whatever I make after I tithe, I then roll it into the film. My husband has helped a little Mm -hmm. um, with like gifting miles and things like that. But we mostly are funded by donations um, and smaller donations. We've had um, one or two big ones. um, But this movie has cost us to this point about 160,000 and I raised a hundred of that, um, just by donations. And, um, so I'd gotten to the point where we were almost done, but I had no money to pay my editor. And I went to bed one night and I said, Lord, I am exhausted. I have been doing this now for, you know, three years or two years for sure. And, um, I feel like I have run the race and I am ready to be done. And so if you want me to be done, I will go home and I will be done. And, um, but if you don't want me to be done tomorrow, I have to have money to pay my editor. And, um, the funny story is that Bill kept trying to, uh, get me to fire him. Cause he's like, you know, you really don't have the money. I don't want you to be paying me. And, um, and I was like, look, the day before I was like, we have one more day. I'm going to give it one more day. I, I know, like, I, I know I probably need to fold, but we're going to give it one more day. And I went in the next day and I'm sitting there, we're editing on our last day. And, um, I get a text message that you've got more money in your account than you think you do. And I went there and somebody, uh, Nora Whalen had made a $1,500 donation. Mm-hmm. And then I got an email from somebody that in November had said she was going to give me $15,000, but then ghosted me. I didn't mm-hmm. hear from her at all. And she wrote me out of the blue and said, I'm so sorry. I've had all this stuff going on, but I'm going to give you 25000 Wow. And I was like, well, I guess I need to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a huge answer to prayer. And, um, and I actually really love it because I, I know that without the Lord's intervention on every single front, be it, you know, team relations, be it finances, be it interviews we needed, be it permissions we needed, the Lord has come through. And so I know this is his film. And um, I just feel like I'm his hands and his feet. And I'm just somebody that said yes. And um, he deserves the glory for for just this being completed. And, um, you know, all the way along, I will have my French friends pray with me mm-hmm. and say, you know, this is happening and we may have to quit, but let's ask God and see what he says. And 
So when he provides, I can say, see what the Lord did, mm-hmm. you know? And so this project has offered me that opportunity to have my faith lived out. And, um, that's really all I care about. And that's why, you know, we had this discussion on the Holy post and I think it's episode, I don't know, three fifty or yeah, I think three fifty. So, um, yeah, we had this episode where it's like, what is a faith based faith based film? And, mine may not qualify from the world's eyes, but like this whole film for me is a faith based film. Mm -hmm. It's, it's born out of my faith in the Lord. It's, um, talks about faith and hope and joy and, you know, reconciliation and restoration and freedom. All of those things are themes. You have people in there that, you know, GIs that talk about praying at crosses in France. You have stories about, um, you know, veterans who are just thankful to God to be alive, to tell the story. Like, I mean, there's some profound um, faith themes throughout this film. And so while this is not created for the Christian market, and while this is not expressly an evalu- you know, an evangelistic tool, mm-hmm. um, for me, the Lord is all over this. And we mentioned earlier about the fact that this is a salvation story. Yeah. There there's, you know, the 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 people that you interview talk about salvation, rescue, the dark night and and seeing the uh, light. Seeing the light and it's just this could be used as a teaching film of showing this is it. Now, let me tell you about the real savior. Yeah. Or tell you about the savior that God sent. Uh so it is faith-based in the fact that you have been pursuing what you believe God has shown you. You've seen him work, and now you've, you're telling a story of salvation that people can relate to, because that's how Jesus taught. He taught in stories so people can relate to it, so then he could say, now you understand this story. This is how God is related Absolutely. to that. Absolutely. It is a parable. There is no question about it. And, you know, my biggest heart for this film is education mm-hmm. uh, on so many different levels, because I do think that we have not taught our history well. And I do think that it is important to remember the history, um, the things that we have done as a country or as people. And I think it's important to tell our children and our children's children. And um, I do think too, anytime I do speak, I talk about the redeeming values of this and how they parallel to my faith. And so I hope that uh, the Lord will use this in the lives of whoever sees it um, to reveal his truth in only the way that he can. And, um, you know, ultimately, do I, I hope, you know, the film can reach as big as audience as possible. You know, we hope it will have distribution through Netflix or iTunes or Amazon Prime. Um, we right now are talking to History Channel and Discovery Channel, and they're interested in it. Um you know, documentary films don't make a lot of money, and I'm not really about that, honestly, at all. I, we do have some production debt mm-hmm. uh, that would be nice if we could pay that off. Um, but after that, I just want people to see the story. And uh, you mentioned earlier um, that there are a way to get uh, the the focus group cut if people want to donate. Yeah. Do you still have a website? Yes. Normandystories.com. And there is, um, if you can just go there and there's a donate button or you can go to normandystories.com slash donate. Um, and then if you make a donation, we will then send a link and the link will have the 
rough cut of the film and then there'll be a survey afterwards. And so we're asking for $25 donation minimum. Um, but we will take whatever anyone will donate for sure. Right. And please let's be honest and don't share the link. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) That would be nice. I trust our people. Yeah, we have to. So it's the girl who wore freedom. It's going to be screened in Normandy, Starting on the 24th, mm-hmm. you're going May on 24th. Tuesday. So you will be in Normandy the day this, this podcast uh, open or drops on um, Wednesday, which will be next Wednesday the 22nd, so two days before open. Yeah, and I don't know where your audience members are, but um, we are having screenings kind of all over the United States. We'll have one in Chicago, and then we'll have, um, I know people have talked about having one in New York City, one in Tennessee, like around the Nashville area. There's going to be one in the villages, Florida. Um, so we've got several screenings planned. Um, so, but people that donate will be invited. <laughs> Absolutely. And I have uh, my mom and my sister live in Ocala, so. I might get tickets for them to come see. Yeah, absolutely. The, I think that's going to be in November, 1st of November. Okay. Very cool. The one in Chicago will be at the end of July, 1st of August. The one in New York will be in October. Um, the one in Nashville will probably be in the f- first or maybe like 1st of September, something like that. So, uh, so yeah. So you, you can follow our Facebook page. So we have the Girl Who Wore Freedom Facebook page. We also have Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can find all of those links on our website, normandystories.com. Um, and if you follow our social media, you will see announcements of openings and um, stuff like that, screenings. And we'll also have all that links in the notes in case somebody's happened to listening while they're driving or whatever you may be doing. So we've got all those links uh, to the Facebook, to Instagram, um, Twitter, everything else. Do you guys have, did you say Twitter? Yep. Okay, good. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, as, as YouTube. We have a YouTube page nice. with other extra videos. Also, I forgot to tell you this, on our website, one of the most exciting things for me is our blog. So we have a blog, and we've been asking people to guest blog for us. So they've talked about their, you know, veterans and their families and what they did during World War II. Or my husband's wrote three, which are my favorite, top ten World War II films, um, top ten films that describe my life being married to a producer mm-hmm. uh, and then the top 10 things that I learned in Normandy because he took me there for our 25th wedding anniversary in the fall. Oh, so, nice. uh, yeah, so I would really encourage people to listen or to read those blog posts and also to listen to documentary first podcast on our website. So normandystories.com is the key to kind of all that good content. Sounds good. Now, as I mentioned before we went on the air, I like to end every interview with uh, the interrogation. Where, All right. Where I just challenge you with seven questions. Say uh, some of them are fun. Some might be a little bit challenging. Okay. But uh, just answer off the top of your head. No wrong answer. Just kind of like an improv game. All right. I'm up for that. All right. First question. What director or studio would be on your bucket list mm. to work with? Ken Burns, for nice. sure, and Tom Hanks. Okay. Uh, prefer to be in front of the camera or behind? Great question. Well, I will say that having experience on both sides of the camera makes me better at both. And I don't know that I can answer that because I never wanted to be a director, but I've loved this experience. And um, I didn't want to be in the film. I didn't want to voice the film, 
but I've ended up being the narrator for this film, which I also loved. So I don't know. It's a tie. I have to say nice voiceover credit for your resume too. Yeah. Thank Thankfully. Uh, favorite hobby, not related to film or production. Well, tennis, but I haven't been able to play in a while. <laughs> um, do you have any uh, directorial inspirations? Anybody that you kind oh, of look to? Absolutely, Ken Burns and Tom Hanks. Biggest fear in life. I will oh, say. Sorry. I will say one thing. Lauren Greenfield, who was the director, producer, writer, narrator of uh, Generation Wealth, was hugely instrumental to me during this process. However, if you're going to watch Generation Wealth, please, there is a disclaimer. It's not for the. It's not for your children. <laughs> It's got some pretty rough themes, but anyway, it it was very instrumental for me. Very good. Um, let's see, biggest fear in life. Mm. Honestly, now my biggest fear is um, besmirching the name of Christ. I really don't ever want to do that, and I want to bring him glory and honor in all I do and say. And but I'm trying not to have fear, honestly. Because the most often, you know, quoted quote from Jesus is... Fear not. Fear not. Yeah. Biggest regret. Mm. Um, I'm going to have to say on this project because it's the biggest, you know, I... I did not give myself enough time in pre-production. And so I didn't have the story fleshed out, but kind of documentaries, you can't really do that. Um, but I look back and I really don't have any regrets because all of the negative things that have happened have been used for good. So I don't really regret much. Final question. Favorite moment thus far in making the girl who wore freedom. Hmm. How can I answer that? Oh my goodness, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think my favorite moment is going to be coming up when I stand on the stage with all of my friends. It's in my imagination at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe when I hear everybody watch and um, I hope I hear them laugh and I hope I hear them cry. Um, I think that will be my favorite moment. And um that's in comparison to meeting veterans from Band of Brothers that are still alive, or from meeting the ambassador to the United St- to France from the United States, or, um, you know, meeting wounded veterans, you know, who are still limping around. Um, I've had some incredible experiences in making of this film, um, but I think seeing people blessed by what the Lord has done will be the moment I remember most. Outstanding. And I like I said, I can't wait to see the, the final production. I hope you like it. I, I I really I was really intrigued with and I enjoyed the first seventeen minutes that we saw and uh, I immediately I saw the salvation story and I was like, wow, this is a this is a story that God wanted told. Yeah. This was like you said, it's a parable that God wanted told and he's made it happen and uh there's no stopping it. Yeah, I think so. I would really ask your audience to pray, you know, pray for what the Lord has in store for this film and um, that he would continue to provide the finances and he would continue to usher this through whatever process he wants it to go through. And uh, Netflix, pick it up. (laughs) Yes, please. 
That'd be great. So Christian, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you. Uh, we'll be praying for you and supporting you in any way we can. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. great time to get a great deal on a new car when you get approved for an auto loan from PenFed. Our powered by true car rates are as low as 1.39% APR on new vehicles. Finance for a longer term to lower your monthly bill. Plus, take up to 60 days to schedule your first payment. Join PenFed and together we'll keep you moving forward. Anyone can apply. Visit PenFed.org auto or call 1-800-247-5626. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl and a foul of the comatose coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.